0: no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details vandalism could be stopped they broke off fragments from noah's tomb from the exquisite sculptures of the temples of baalbek from the houses of judas and ananias in damascus from the tomb of nimrod the mighty hunter in jonesboro from the worn greek and roman inscriptions set in the hoary walls of the castle of Benias, And now they have been hacking and chipping these old arches here that Jesus looked upon in the flesh. Heaven protect the sepulchre when this tribe invades Jerusalem. The ruins here are not very interesting. There are the massive walls of a great square building that was once the citadel. There are many ponderous old arches that are so smothered with debris that they barely project above the ground. There are heavy-walled sewers through which the crystal brook of which Jordan is born still runs. In the hillside are the substructions of a costly marble temple that Herod the Great built here. Patches of its handsome mosaic floor still remain. There is a quaint old stone bridge that was here before Herod's time, maybe. Scattered everywhere in the paths and in the woods are Corinthian capitals, broken porphyry pillars, and little fragments of sculpture and up yonder, in the precipice where the fountain gushes out, are well-worn Greek inscriptions over niches in the rock where in ancient times the Greeks, and after them the Romans, worshipped the sylvan god Pan. But trees and bushes grow above many of these ruins now. The miserable huts of a little crew of filthy Arabs are perched upon the broken masonry of antiquity, the whole place has a sleepy, stupid, rural look about it and one can hardly bring himself to believe that a busy, substantially built city once existed here, even two thousand years ago. The place was, nevertheless, the scene of an event whose effects have added page after page and volume after volume to the world's history. For in this place Christ stood when he said to Peter, "'Thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." On those little sentences have been built up the mighty edifice of the Church of Rome. In them lie the authority for the imperial power of the popes over temporal affairs, and their godlike power to curse a soul or wash it white from sin. To sustain the position of the only true Church, which Rome claims was thus conferred upon her, she has fought and labored and struggled for many a century, and will continue to keep herself busy in the same work to the end of time. The memorable words I have quoted give to this ruined city about all the interest it possesses to people of the present day. It seems curious enough to us to be standing on ground that was once actually pressed by the feet of the Saviour. The situation is suggestive of a reality and a tangibility that seems at variance with the vagueness and mystery and ghostliness that one naturally attaches to the character of a god. I cannot comprehend yet that I am sitting where a god has stood, and looking upon the brook and the mountains which that god looked upon, and am surrounded by dusky men and women whose ancestors saw him, and even talked with him face to face, and carelessly, just as they would have done with any other stranger. I cannot comprehend this. The gods, of my understanding, have been always hidden in clouds, and very far away. This morning, during breakfast, the usual assemblage of squalid humanity sat patiently without the charmed circle of the camp, and waited for such crumbs as pity might bestow upon their misery. There were old and young, brown-skinned and yellow. Some of the men were tall and stalwart for one hardly sees anywhere such splendid-looking men as here in the East. But all the women and children looked worn and sad, and distressed with hunger. They reminded me much of Indians, did these people. They had but little clothing, but such as they had was fanciful in character, and fantastic in its arrangement. Any little absurd googaw or gimcrack they had, they disposed in such a way as to make it attract attention most readily. They sat in silence, and with tireless patience watched out every motion with that vile, uncomplaining impoliteness which is so truly Indian, and which makes a white man so nervous and uncomfortable and savage that he wants to exterminate the whole tribe. These people about us had other peculiarities, which I have noticed in the noble red man, too. They were infested with vermin, and the dirt had caked on them till it amounted to bark. The little children were in a pitiable condition. They all had sore eyes, and were otherwise afflicted in various ways. They say that hardly a native child in all the East is free from sore eyes, and that thousands of them go blind of one eye or both every year. I think this must be so, for I see plenty of blind people every day, and I do not remember seeing any children that hadn't sore eyes. And would you suppose that an American mother could sit for an hour with her child in her arms? and let a hundred flies roost upon its eyes, all that time undisturbed? I see that every day. It makes my flesh creep. Yesterday we met a woman riding on a little jackass, and she had a little child in her arms. Honestly, I thought the child had goggles on as we approached, and I wondered how its mother could afford so much style. But when we drew near we saw that the goggles were nothing but a camp-meeting of flies assembled around each of the child's eyes and at the same time there were a detachment prospecting its nose. The flies were happy, the child was contented, and so the mother did not interfere. As soon as the tribe found out that we had a doctor in our party, they began to flock in from all quarters. Dr. B., in the charity of his nature, had taken a child from a woman who sat near by, and put some sort of a wash upon its diseased eyes. That woman went off and started the whole nation, and it was a sight to see them swarm. The lame, the halt, the blind, the leprous, all the distempers that are bred of indolence, dirt, and iniquity, were represented in the Congress in ten minutes, and still they came. Every woman that had a sick baby brought it along, and every woman that hadn't borrowed one. What reverent and what worshiping looks they bent upon that dread, mysterious power, the doctor. They watched him take his files out, they watched him measure the particles of white powder. They watched him add drops of one precious liquid, and drops of another. They lost not the slightest movement. Their eyes were riveted upon him, with a fascination that nothing could distract. I believe they thought he was gifted like a god. When each individual got his portion of medicine, his eyes were radiant with joy, notwithstanding, by nature they are a thankless and impassive race, and upon his face was written the unquestioning faith that nothing on earth could prevent the patient from getting well now. Christ knew how to preach to these simple, superstitious, disease-tortured creatures. He healed the sick. They flocked to our poor human doctor this morning, when the fame of what he had done to the sick child went abroad in the land, and they worshipped him with their eyes, while they did not know as yet whether there was virtue in his simples or not. The ancestors of these, people precisely like them in color, dress, manners, customs, simplicity, flocked in vast multitudes after Christ and when they saw him make the afflicted whole with a word, it is no wonder they worshipped him. No wonder his deeds were the talk of the nation. No wonder the multitude that followed him was so great that at one point, thirty miles from here, they had to let a sick man down through the roof, because no approach could be made to the door. No wonder his audience were so great at Galilee that he had to preach from a ship removed a little distance from the shore. No wonder that even in the desert places about Bethsaida five thousand invaded his solitude. And he had to feed them by a miracle, or else see them suffer for their confiding faith and devotion. No wonder when there was a great commotion in a city in those days one neighbor explained it to another in words to this effect. They say that Jesus of Nazareth is come." Well, as I was saying, the doctor distributed medicine as long as he had any to distribute, and his reputation is mighty in Galilee this day. Among his patients was the child of the sheik's daughter, for even this poor ragged handful of sores and sin has its royal sheik, a poor old mummy that looked as if he would be more at home in a poor house than in the chief magistracy of this tribe of hopeless shirtless savages. The princess, I mean the sheik's daughter was only thirteen or fourteen years old, and had a very sweet face and a pretty one. She was the only Syrian female we have seen yet who was not so sinfully ugly that she couldn't smile after ten o'clock Saturday night without breaking the Sabbath. Her child was a hard specimen, though. There wasn't enough of it to make a pie, and the poor little thing looked so pleadingly up at all who came near it, as if it had an idea that now was its chance or never, that we were filled with compassion, which was genuine and not put on. But this last new horse I have got is trying to break his neck over the tent-ropes, and I shall have to go out and anchor him. Jericho and I have parted company. The new horse is not much to boast of, I think. One of his hind legs bends the wrong way, and the other one is as straight and stiff as a tent-pole. Most of his teeth are gone, and he is as blind as bat. His nose has been broken at some time or other, and is arched like a culvert now his under-lip hangs down like a camel's, and his ears are chopped off close to his head. I had some trouble at first to find a name for him, but I finally concluded to call him Balbeck because he is such a magnificent ruin. I cannot keep from talking about my horses, because I have a very long and tedious journey before me, and they naturally occupy my thoughts about as much as matters of apparently much greater importance. We satisfied our pilgrims by making those hard rides from Baalbek to Damascus. But Dan's horse and Jack's were so crippled we had to leave them behind and get fresh animals for them. The dragoman says Jack's horse died. I swapped horses with Mohammed, the kingly-looking Egyptian who is our Ferguson's lieutenant. By Ferguson I mean our dragoman Abraham, of course. I did not take this horse on account of his personal appearance, but because I have not seen his back. I do not wish to see it. I have seen the backs of all the other horses, and found most of them covered with dreadful saddle-boils, which I know have not been washed or doctored for years. The idea of riding all day long over such ghastly inquisitions of torture is sickening. My horse must be like the others, but I have at least the consolation of not knowing it to be so." I hope that in future I may be spared any more sentimental praises of the Arab's idolatry of his horse. In boyhood I longed to be an Arab of the desert, and have a beautiful mare, and call her Salim or Benjamin, or Mohammed, and feed her with my own hands, and let her come into the tent, and teach her to caress me, and look fondly upon me with her great tender eyes. And I wished that a stranger might come at such a time and offer me a hundred thousand dollars for her so that I could do like the other Arabs, hesitate, yearn for the money, but, overcome by my love for my mare, at last say, Part with thee, my beautiful one, never with my life! Away, tempter! I scorn thy gold, and then bound into the saddle, and speed over the desert like the wind. But I recall those aspirations. If these Arabs be like the other Arabs, their love for their beautiful mares is a fraud. These, of my acquaintance, have no love for their horses, no sentiment of pity for them, and no knowledge of how to treat them or care for them. The Syrian saddle-blanket is a quilted mattress two or three inches thick. It is never removed from the horse, day or night. It gets full of dirt and hair, and becomes soaked with sweat. It is bound to breed sores. These pirates never think of washing a horse's back. They do not shelter the horses in the tents, either. They must stay out, and take the weather as it comes. Look at poor cropped and dilapidated Balbeck, and weep for the sentiment that has been wasted upon the Selims of romance. End of chapter 45